Hello and welcome to the Visa Angle, an Visa Partners podcast where we analyze the biggest stories from around the world and their impact on business and policy. Visa Partners is a global public affairs and government relations consulting firm. You can learn more at avisa-partners.com. And you can find the Visa Angle on Spotify, Apple, and anywhere you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, consider subscribing and giving us a five-star review. I'm your host, Daniel Flesh, coming to you from our office in Washington, D.C. Last week, the Biden administration hosted the second U.S.-Africa Leaders Summit in Washington, D.C. It was the first such summit since 2014 and featured leaders from over 50 African countries, including the African Union, for three days of panel discussions, keynote speeches, and networking opportunities to advance business, policy, trade, and other relations. In town to cover the event was my colleague of the Avisa Paris office, Guillaume Doan. Guillaume is the consulting director of 35 Nord, an Avisa partners company that specializes in strategic communications in Africa. He was here to attend the summit. He's well, uh, kind enough to join us on the Avisa angle. Thank Guillaume, you very welcome, much, Daniel. Yeah, great to have you here. So, Guillaume, please set the scene for us. What is the summit? First one since 2014. Why was there one then? Why is there one now? And who were some of the main figures in attendance? As you rightfully put it, Daniel, the U.S. Africa Leaders Summit was the second one held, the first since 2014, and really represents a new era of U.S. African engagement. Uh, there has not been a visit by a U.S. president to the African continent since 2015. That's the last time when President Obama addressed the African Union in Addis Ababa in Ethiopia. Since then, what we can say is that U.S. engagement in the African continent has been totally in the wilderness. Hmm. Um, there are maybe three takeaways. Um, the first is that U.S. trade with Africa has plummeted. Um, ten years ago, the U.S. was the number one trade partner with the African continent. That is no longer the case. Uh, the U.S. has really lost pace to its traditional rivals, mainly China, which is now the right. largest trade partner, right. Russia, India, Turkey, mm. Japan, the European Union. Um, there is a very, very competitive space now in trading with the African continent, and the U.S. has been on the decline. Uh, the second takeaway is that um, the African continent has been shifting in terms of how it does business, um, how it wants to do business, and wants to do business with with trade partners mm -hmm. on equal footing. Mm -hmm. Not be viewed as client states or lesser partners. Does not want to be viewed as a pawn in a the pawn. battlefield of superpowers. Yeah. Uh, so there has been a shift in United States policy in the last 10 years to adjust to the way that Africa wants to deal with its trade partners. Um, and the third takeaway mm -hmm. is that we're dealing with uh, a world now in which the energy sector is evolving. Yep. Uh, the U.S.-African trade relationship has really been built on oil and gas, and that's um, something that has declined over the last 10 years. And now the American uh, government and the American private sector finds itself reeling and adjusting to, to, to that reality. Uh, we're also on the back of a Trump administration that has largely overlooked the African mm -hmm. continent for, for an entire four years. So the U.S.-Africa Leaders Summit was an opportunity for the Biden administration not only to invite 
every African head of state to to the White House. Um, but it was also an opportunity to declare we are here to re-engage with the African continent um, and to continue executing a new Africa policy that was announced by the Biden administration uh, this summer when uh, Anthony Blinken made a tour of the continent. Yeah, I want to get to that in just a minute, but just take a step back also. We speak about Africa. Like I said, nearly 50 countries were here in D.C., and Africa is a continent, right? It's not a country. Uh, and so it's not a homogenous place. And when most people think of Africa, I mean, what comes to mind? You know, most people, these uh, millennial generation, for example, they might know of the Rwandan genocide. They might know the movie Blood Diamond, or you hear about Somali pirates, or the civil war in Ethiopia. These are not very positive, uh, uh, you know, correspondence with, with Africa, with African countries. So in this year also, I looked it up before, that Freedom House classified only eight sub-Saharan African countries as free, which is the fewest since 91. It's also part of a broader global democracy deficit with countries retreating from free and open societies more to closed ones. So, but this is obviously not the whole story of the African continent. So all those three main areas you're talking about, can you parse down a little bit and, and talk about some major issues that specific countries might be facing and how we carve up this 50 plus country continent into different pieces. Right. I mean, I think it's always important not to view Africa as a monolith. Right. Uh, we've got 54 very distinct, different, diverse countries, um, each of them with their own particular issues. Um, at the same time, there is an opportunity to view the continent as a whole, the eco economies of scale, which is mm -hmm. why we keep talking about the Africa uh, Continental Free Trade Agreement mm -hmm. um, that has just been put in place. 1.3 billion people, an economy of $3.4 trillion. Um, so it's being able to view each country individually. Uh, being able to understand each country's idiosyncrasies mm -hmm. and, and the way of working while bringing them together and understanding that Africa as a whole is a gigantic opportunity for the U.S. government and for U.S. companies to do trade with. Uh, we recognize first and foremost that the commonality between many African countries is that is youth. Uh, this right. is the youngest continent in the world. Uh, it's going to be a country by the end of the decade of continent by the end of the decade of two billion people. Yep. Um, we're talking about some of the fastest developing economies in the world. Uh, seven of the top 20 fastest growing economies hmm. uh, in, the, in the world are African economies. Which ones? Uh, top of your head? Senegal. Senegal. Uh, Cote d'Ivoire. Yeah. Uh, until recently, Ethiopia. Mm -hmm. uh, Kenya. Uh, Rwanda. Yeah. Uh, these are fast growing economies that amongst them, and some of them for different reasons, but share commonality is right. they're fast growing, they're young, uh, there is a growing middle class. Uh, there is uh, a diversification away from a dependence on only natural resources to grow these economies. Uh, there's a trend towards towards democracy. Uh, there's a strengthening of governance. All of the type of KPIs that you're looking mm -hmm. for for stabilizing economies you're starting to find in these African countries. So while we're trying to steer away from viewing the entire continent as a monolith, we try and find the commonality between right. them that makes them stronger and stronger while steering away from the typical African tropes that have made the Africa story difficult to tell. The story of instability, mm -hmm. of, of violence, of natural disasters, mm -hmm. uh, the, the, the Africa of tragedy we focus away from at 35 Nord, at 35 Degrees North, our mm -hmm. communications agency, and we try and tell a new narrative. Uh, what we try and do is 
equip our clients with the tools that they need in order to tell their own story. Yeah. Uh, and, and this is the commonality of our clients on the African continent is they want to be able to have the platform to tell their own story rather than have someone tell it for them. Yeah. And the, these growing economies, and I, I didn't look, I didn't know until I looked it up that, uh, I think a, a quarter of the world's population will live in Africa. It's estimated by 2050 and with demographics, what are, what they are, uh, it said a lot, you know, there's a lot of focus on China being a rising power and the U.S.-China relationship, uh, great power competition, et cetera. But it's been talk, I know, for well over a decade that the 21st century will be Africa's century. It's absolutely true. I mean, if, if you believe, as I do, in the phenomenon known as the demographic dividend, yeah. where are the countries in the world that are going to experience that? Most of them are in Africa. Yeah. Uh, Europe had it um, around the time of the baby boomers. Mm-hmm. Uh Southeast Asia had it. Uh, Ireland had it. Uh, all of these economic phenomenon are all linked to one thing, demographics. Right. One in which the workforce is large and the number of people in the workforce is larger than the number of people outside of it. Right. Uh, this is the sweet spot economically. And you see a lot of countries that are about to go through that when um, the uh, reproduction rate goes down, people are having fewer children, uh, and the number of people workforce gets high enough and the all of the economic conditions necessary to make that happen are there. Mm-hmm. Countries like Senegal, yeah. c- countries like Rwanda, countries like Nigeria are going to all witness a huge economic well, Nigeria is already the fifth largest country in the world, fourth by population. Absolutely, over yeah. 200 million over people. Right. I mean, we're going to be seeing a world in which Yoruba is one of the most spoken languages in the world. Interesting. And... You know, Africa in many ways is also, again, kind of speaking as a whole, though, punching above its weight. Because before Visa, I was at the United Nations, and you see that 20% of the voting bloc in the General Assembly are African, 20% are African countries, and they often can vote as a bloc. They have significant weight to throw around there. Um, you mentioned, you know, that the population. So, in the context of this, you said earlier also, the Biden administration issued a new strategy for sub-Saharan Africa. And I actually really quickly want to pause. When you speak a lot of Africa, are you referring kind of to just sub-Saharan Africa or Africa as a whole, whole with you know Morocco, Algeria, um, Northern Africa as well? Well, I, we, we, we tend to view the continent as the continental Africa. Right. That does include um, the Maghreb countries mm-hmm. and, and, and North Africa, even though they have commonalities with the Middle East. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think when the Biden administration speaks about sub-Saharan Africa, they speak about sub-Saharan Africa, which is but, their strategy. But right. it, at this summit, every single African country, including Morocco okay. and Algeria and uh, and Egypt, was invited. Yeah, right. And only a few weren't invited, right? Only countries that were not recognized by the African Union or were under sanction by the U.S. government. Yeah. So. Can you explain for a minute the African Union? People know about mainly about the, you know, the European Union. How is the African Union? Is it anyways similar, dissimilar? What is the purpose of the AU? Uh, the European Union is different from the African Union. I mean, the European yeah. Union has a common currency. The African Union does not. Um, the African, but again, the, the, the charter of the African Union is very similar. Um, every single country on the African continent is a member uh, and has to prescribe to the charters. I can't get into be, be, right, be, right. Be, beyond that, but um, it is a very similar group as the European Union without a common currency. Yeah, it's to make common policy and trade issues and security issues, et cetera. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Um, the, the African Continental Free Trade Agreement was launched through the African Union. So. Oh, very interesting. So getting back to the summit now, can you walk us through some of the, the highlights as you saw it? So 
This was an opportunity for the Biden administration to make good on a new sub-Saharan African policy that was launched um, over the summer by uh, Secretary Blinken during his visit to South Africa, which really is predicated on four key pillars. Um, The first is governance, democracy. The U.S. government is very, very careful uh, not to overemphasize the D word uh, because of not wanting to appear like there are strings attached in the U.S. Mm. Africa relationship, mm-hmm. even though they do want to encourage strong governance uh, and the importance of uh, rule of law. Um, the second is COVID recovery. So the U.S. government, the entire apparatus being able to put at Africa's disposal all of the support tools and investment needed to help um, the African continent um, in its recovery. Mm-hmm. Uh, the third pillar being renewable energy and the transition uh, of renewable energy, b- being able to provide assistance uh, to African countries to uh, implement renewable energy projects to decarbonize um, the, the African continent. Um, And the fourth is the digital transformation, Um, being able to assist in connecting the African continent, uh, train a whole new generation of engineers and and programmers and ensure that uh, the African continent is connected to a global world. So really quickly, this strategy, is it on the level of when when George W. Bush uh, implemented PEPFAR, presidential emergency, what was it, the president's emergency plan for AIDS relief in Africa? Uh, is on that level, or is it more just a strategic guideline that most administrations put out? No, no. I, I like. I think we're hearing, we're seeing an enormous departure from American policy on the Af- African continent. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there is a few realizations. The first is that a policy of aid has not worked. Mm-hmm. The U.S. has put pumped over a trillion dollars of aid into the African continent over a period of decades and has recognized that that has not worked. So we're moving from a policy of aid to a policy of private sector business, one of of investment. Um, The the second uh, realization is that other countries have figured out how to be a better trade partner with with the African continent. When uh, President Bush was... Uh, trading with Africa in back in early 2000s, mm-hmm. uh, America was the biggest trade partner, but the bulk of that trade relationship was oil and gas. Yeah, That's no longer the case right. or for several reasons. Well, first and foremost, that the U.S. is far more energy independent than right. it used to be. Right. So we were able to see through the decline in trade a realization that oil and gas was taking up a huge share of the pie and other economic sectors needed assistance. So um, the renewal of the AGOA agreement um, was very, very important, but it really needs to be fortified. And that's part of what the new U.S.-African engagement is all about. The creation of the Prosper Africa Initiative in 2016, Mm -hmm. um, excuse me, 2018 by the Trump administration was designed to trans shift from an aid-based policy to one of private sector mobilization mm-hmm. to bring private sector U.S. businesses to the African continent and find new opportunities. And this U.S. policy is like reversing an oil tanker. It takes time. Right. The, the huge question that 
we find ourselves asking, that I find myself asking is, how much of this new policy is just derivative of what other trade partners have done, including China? And, or how much of it is a realization that this is the way that the African continent wants to work? We're going to see that unfold in the months to come as the Biden administration tries to make good on this week. So if it's derivative of other countries, it's mainly because we're playing catch up now. Absolutely. Right. And, and you know, the big elephant in the room, or should I say the big panda in the room you're talking about mainly is China, correct? Because China, under Xi Jinping and the Belt and Road Initiative, although a little bit different, but they've been setting up, you know, business partnerships, military partnerships throughout the world, throughout Africa, South and Southern Asia, in uh, South America as well, and opportunities to not only extract resources, but then provide labor, but have long-term leases on the continent, on, the, on these different areas that some are directly threatening you know, U.S. security, U.S. military bases. Others are just, you know, providing more competition for U.S. businesses and for U.S. interests in Africa. I think the, 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 the first is that there was a no-strings-attached no political strings attached right. relationship there that was extremely seductive for, for African countries. There's nothing worse for uh, an African dictator than a U.S. government coming in here and saying, well, we'll work with you provided, so long as yeah. you provided you dot, dot, dot. Yeah. Uh, the Chinese government hasn't done that. Um, the, the, the second seduction was, well, we're going to provide you with billion-dollar loans in exchange for your resources. That says, A, we're going to provide you with money to develop your infrastructure, and we're going to buy your oil. Uh, those are two things that the U.S. government was not willing to do. Hmm. Uh, the infrastructure piece is important. Um, and so the U.S. government, through the private sector, being able to figure out how uh, roads, bridges, ports power plants are all going to be built uh, is really the, the the tricky part to figure out. So the Trump administration, actually, your comment now about their plan in 2018 sheds a little bit new light because if they wanted to step back and have private companies, private enterprises essentially fill the void or start to take the lead in Africa, is this an extension of that? And are private companies stepping up and trying finding favorable business and trade relations opportunities? Uh, I think the Prosper Africa initiative is um, an unfulfilled promise for the time being. It was created by the Trump administration, I think, with the right idea, mm -hmm. but without the conviction to see it through. Okay. The Trump administration gutted out the State Department and filled vacant, le left vacant, very important diplomatic posts for nearly the entirety of its administration. Mm -hmm. South Africa did not have an ambassador until 2019. Mm. Um, so it's hard to implement these very large and significant changes in policy without the diplomatic representatives there to, 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 to do so. Then came COVID. Right. So... We, we haven't really seen what Prosper Africa is capable of. We're talking about bringing together 17 U.S. government agencies under one roof, putting $50 billion of potential investment on the table, and, and deploying that, all while accessing the U.S. private sector and mobilizing them to the African continent. I think it's a terrific idea, but mm -hmm. it's going to take time. It's going to take time, right. Uh, so looking forward a little bit, uh, well, actually, one thing about if oil and gas is no longer the primary uh, trading 
commodity, at least for the United States in, in Africa, and maybe more, more generally for other countries too. You talk about renewables and other electric vehicles, perhaps. I know Congo, for example, is a great source of cobalt, which China is very interested in. I assume we are as well, right? It's because that cobalt is a key ingredient, I think, the chip manufacturing for electric vehicles. Uh, where are we, do you, do you see us on the competition for other critical resources, minerals, et cetera, in, the, in trying to realize a green future? I think this is going to be a lot more challenging than, than, than the U.S. reckons, hmm. uh, I think for several reasons. One, you've got a lot of resource-dependent countries that are not going to transition that easily. And, and don't want to transition so easily. Uh, there is a view... Transition from, from fossil fuels to renewable energy. Um, you know, g- grab any oil and gas producing country like an Angola mm-hmm. or an Equatorial Guinea or a Nigeria and tell them, well, in 10 years, the resource on which you depend for your economic f- survival is no longer going to be sold on global markets and you're going to shift to an economy based on wind and tomatoes. Yeah. It's, 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 it's a hard sell to make, especially after a lot of industrialized economies, all industrialized economies built their economies on the back of fossil fuels. Right. And so there is a, a real tension at play here in which African countries are saying, wait a second, we only contribute less than 5% of the world's carbon emissions. Our continent is disproportionately affected by the impacts of climate change. You're still running your economies on fossil fuels and you're telling us not to develop mm-hmm. these projects? So that's a big challenge that the Biden administration and future American administrations are going to have in trying to convince African economies to switch immediately to renewables. They don't necessarily want to. Right, right. I mean, particularly the Biden administration has gone, you know, jumped in the deep end with, you know, without a life preserver for renewable energies, for green energy, right? They're all in. Well, and, and I think, and this is this is symbolic of how African countries want to be treated. They want every issue to be treated through an African lens. That it can't just be a global template applied, applied to, to an Africa, African context. Right. There has to be some kind of exceptionalism for, for, for the African continent. First and foremost, recognizes that the carbon emissions footprint is far lower in Africa than it is anywhere else to uh, that. If you're going to uh, enact, execute a very abrupt and rude energy transition, that there has to be some kind of financial compensation right. for it. Uh, and, th- and this is something that we saw at the last COP27 in Sharm el-Sheikh, um, African delegation. Just a few weeks ago. Just yeah. a few weeks ago, we, we, we saw African delegation come in droves and really say, we want a seat at the table. Uh, and we want to be taken seriously. And this is, this is the lens through which the U.S.-African engagement has to take place. So if American companies or foreign companies, for that matter, are looking to engage with, again, holistically Africa, how should they go about do it? Where should they be looking? What they should, what should they be looking at? I'm, n- I'm not equipped to be a business advisor. Um, what, what, I, what I will say is that large 
companies, be they Coca-Cola, be they GE, be they ExxonMobil, the ones that have viewed the continent as a whole, thinking we're going to have economies of scale and it's going to work this way, have all made huge mistakes. Each African continent has to, each country, country has yeah. to be treated individually. Mm -hmm. You have to have an individual strategy with each. Um, you can't go into Ghana thinking we're going to operate in the entire region and it's going to work out. You have to go into Ghana and succeed in Ghana alone. What are some of the Sorry to cut you off, but some of the projections or expectations with the free trade agreement now? Well, I think there's a lot of uh, promise and kind of a sanguine outlook about the free trade agreement, but it's long from being successfully implemented. Yeah. The headlines sound good, and from from the outside, telling yourself you've got access to a $1.3 billion person marketplace right. with 3.4 trillion dollars they're big numbers <laughs> yeah. but um in practicality it doesn't work that way um the 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 free trade zone is not the european union right it's uh it's not even nafta uh so it's a long way from being practically implemented uh we have to successfully work in regional blocks first mm -hmm. um, and i think this is something that u.s experts on Africa have pointed out very, very well. Um, let's figure out the South African development, the Southern Africa development pool first, and and then work on, on a region. Why focus there first, Southern Africa? Uh, b because you're, you're dealing with four or five countries at a time first and figuring out, you know, natural trade partners that have mm -hmm. worked together. Uh, he, there's, there's a historical challenge to making a continental free trade agreement work. Right. Cameroon has a bigger trade relationship with France than it does with its neighbor Gabon. They share a border, and yet they, both of them trade more with a country that is thousands of miles away for historical and, co and colonial reasons. Mm -hmm. So w we need to break through all that hmm. uh, in order to make this work. Not only do they share a border, they also share a currency, and they share... Um, an economic, uh, uh, a regional economic zone uh, that would give them every advantage in the world to trade with each other and not with other countries. That's interesting. I did not know that. Trading more with France than their neighbor. That's interesting. So do you think we'll have to wait another eight years for the next U.S.-Africa Leader Summit? No, I don't think so. Um, I think, well, I think politics do matter a lot here. Uh, if we have... A second Biden administration, yes, we will see one. Um, under President DeSantos, I don't know. Uh, under Trump version two, who knows? Yeah, <laughs> remains to be seen. Well, anything else of note before we, uh, we let you go? No, I, I think uh, it, it's important to follow how this is going to be implemented. President Biden announced $15 billion worth of deals uh, executed during the summit. Uh, he announced a very large and ambitious African engagement program. He announced that he would uh, nominate and designate a person in charge of successfully implementing this. Uh, remains to be seen how successful that is. A lot remains to be seen in the U.S. political system for the next 24 months, for sure. Absolutely. <laughs> so, Guillaume, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, uh, for everyone out there, this will be our final podcast of 2022. Wish everyone a safe and happy new year. We'll see you all next year on The Visa Angle.